can tell you that I got at least 100 rejection letters in that process, you know, trying to obtain work wow. in the international forum. And each time, you know, you learn something from the process, whether you're interviewed uh, in a different language, whether that's French. And so I was stunned to be interviewed in French in Chicago. It wasn't something I anticipated, but because I had mentioned that I had French on my resume, that happened. Welcome to the Supply Chain Ambassador Podcast. I'm your host, Bruno, helping you navigate the world of supply chain in a fun and engaging way. Now, when we think of procurement, we think about our immediate jobs and what we do. But there is a governing body outside of public service that has to maintain a careful balance with public service as well as the private sector. To find out more about this governing body, I have with me the Procurement Ombudsman. Mr. Alexander Yeglich has been named the Procurement Ombudsman for a five-year term. Alex is a lawyer by background and most recently served as the General Counsel for Private Public Partnerships Canada Incorporated, a federal crown corporation, where he was involved in the procurement process for large infrastructure projects. He previously held positions of increased responsibility in the United States and Canada, including at the Canadian Commercial Corporation as Senior Legal Counsel and in the Australian Trade Commission as Business Development Manager and International Trade Advisor in Washington, D.C. Throughout Alex's legal and professional career, he has focused primarily on procurement, contracting, and dispute resolution, which will serve him well as a procurement ombudsman. Alex has also been teaching procurement law at Carleton University since 2010. Alex and his wife, Shelley, have four children. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Bruno, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Like I said to you previously, you know, I think you've done a wonderful job highlighting genuine procurement issues to a broad audience. So congratulations on a job well done. And thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to have you on the show as well. Can you describe your journey and how you got to your current role? Yeah, absolutely. So over and above what you already mentioned, which is really kind of the nuts and bolts of the titles that I held in the past, like I just want to walk you through a little bit of how I got to the final resting spot of becoming the procurement ombudsperson. So my job, sorry, my role wasn't as pure A to B type career path. And so I'll just highlight a few of those so you can appreciate that it's not all success. And I always describe this like as an annotated version of my LinkedIn profile. So I graduated University at Carleton, went to law school at Loyola University in Chicago, graduated and passed the bar in 2003 in Illinois. And then I started my career in the United States. And so you highlighted uh, some of the work that I did, but I'll kind of walk you through how I kind of got into the field of procurement. So when I was in law school, I always kind of gravitated to international law and international law was the thing you would hear coming out of my mouth over and over again in terms of what's the first job you want to get out of law school? Well, anything to do with international law. And as kind of I was challenged by what that actually meant, I realized I didn't really have a true appreciation for what that meant. But while I was in law school, I did get some exposure to international commercial arbitration. And I love the aspect of that cultural overlay to 
to con commercial disputes. And so that really drew me in. And so I initially started working with the Chicago International Dispute Resolution Association, where they did um, private party to private party international commercial arbitration. So I found I really got some valuable experience there. Then life led me from Chicago to Washington, and I worked as a trade extern for the European Union delegation to the United States. So at that time, I was really charged with doing briefing notes for congressional hearings on free trade agreements that the United States was contemplating entering into with a variety of different countries, one of which happened to be Australia at the time. And one of the focuses in the hearing that I specifically focused on was the procurement chapter of the Australia free trade agreement. So it just so happened that then a job became available at the Australian Trade Commission and the position for uh, that was available was actually in their selling to the US government team and it actually got a fair bit of spotlight in Australia because this was new. It was part of the new FTA that was being advertised in Australia and it was an opportunity for Australian businesses to sell directly to the US federal government, which previously had been kind of an un, uh, a locked market for them. So it was a really exciting opportunity. And it often, it offered me the opportunity to really roll up my sleeves and understand the granular aspects of procurement that were previously not known to me, or at least not to that extent. It was an amazing job. I had an opportunity to help innovative Australian companies um, submit RFPs to the US federal government. And you saw the successes and you saw the failures and you lived them from the private sector side, even though I was working for the Australian uh, Trade Commission at the time. So at that point, I actually had other personal changes happened. So I was about to get married. My wife was from Ottawa. My father lived in Calgary and he had a massive stroke. And so ultimately it was one of those situations where life overtook what would have been the planned career. So we had debated where we wanted to live and now it became abundantly clear that that had to be Ottawa. So I moved my father from Calgary to Ottawa to help care for him. So I wasn't barred in Ontario, meaning I had no license to practice law in Ontario, but my life now was going to be in Ottawa. So I quickly kind of had to navigate what was at the time, like a pretty difficult uh, hiring situation. And so, you know, I had no connections, hadn't been back in Ottawa in seven or eight years. And so I was reaching out to people. And so luckily I landed at the Department of Justice and I was offered the opportunity to work within the legal services unit um, at Global Affairs, which is now Global Affairs Canada. And uh, I really enjoyed the opportunity while I was working towards getting barred in Ontario. And so because of my background in procurement, I was offered the opportunity to work on procurement related files. And so it immediately created this level of comfort. And while everything else was happening around me, it provided that Zen moment where I know what I'm doing. I'm working on international procurement related issues and so I really enjoyed what I was doing and one of the files I was working on was actually working on a file associated with the Canadian Commercial Corporation and through work on that file I got to know some of the people who worked at that Crown Corporation and I found out that they actually do procurement international transactions and dispute resolution which was kind of a perfect blend of what my experience was so even though I wasn't looking to leave global affairs at the time or the Department of Justice it just seemed like the perfect perfect blend. And again, I was still kind of managing and navigating my father's situation. I was newly married. So there was all of these kind of situations in flux, but I still decided, you know what, I'm going to go for it. It feels right. And I'm just going to jump in. 
And so while at CCC, I really got to do exactly what I had hoped to do. And it was a wonderful experience. And as a result of all the experience gained, I grew more and more comfortable in the role and providing advice and knowing what to do. And that kind of confidence early on in your career is really kind of transformational in how you see your role in the process. And so as a result of that experience gained at the Canadian Commercial Corporation, I applied for a position with the other Crown Corporation that you mentioned, Public-Private Partnerships Canada. And so they did large-scale infrastructure projects. And some of these were billion-dollar transactions. And it wasn't just at the federal level. They provided funding for municipal-level projects. And so I also got to learn much more about municipal projects. And again, it was done through a different framework. So the P3 transaction is quite different from the tra traditional transaction. And so I got all of that experience and I felt like I was growing and I was really loving the work I was doing. And then ultimately the government decided to wind down the corporation. So unexpectedly, I was looking for work, even though, you know, I was loving my job and really felt like I was providing valuable guidance and counsel to the corporation. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of developed three buckets. One bucket was what jobs are better than the current job I have? What jobs are the same and what jobs are worse? Because like you said, I have four kids, right? And so not having a job wasn't really an option. And so procurement ombudsman was in that bucket of jobs better than the one I had. And to be honest, I read the job poster for what the job required. And I thought this perfectly matches all of the steps I've taken along the way. Yeah. And I thought, at, at best, you know, uh, or sorry, yeah, at best, I would get an interview, right? And I, I felt quite satisfied when I got that interview, but I felt so comfortable in the role talking about what I would be doing in the role that I think that kind of confidence translated into success in that initial interview and brought me back for a secondary interview with a larger audience. Mm -hmm. And so again, in that larger audience, I wasn't intimidated. I really felt like I had nothing to lose. And so it was just simply talking about those experiences I'd gained each step of the way. Some of them, you know, planned, some of them being in the right position at the right time, mm -hmm. but also like there was the part of it that's just luck, right? It just so happened that they opened up uh, governor and council appointments to a merit-based process before mm -hmm or it hadn't been an application. So I got to actually apply for the position. So it never dawned on me that I would actually get the role until kind of those last stages. And then when I got the call directly from the minister herself, it yeah. was, it was mind blowing, right? And it was, wow, I have a lot of responsibility and I really need to turn my mind to what do I want to accomplish with the role? And I'd already thought about it significantly as part of the interview process, but I don't think I'd really kind of granularly mapped out what I wanted to do. So I actually had to go before a House of Commons committee very early on um, in that tenure. And so they asked me what my priorities were. And so I named the four priorities that I had named in the interview process. Mm -hmm. And I felt like these are really important to me and they were simplification, transparency, growth in alternative dispute resolution and knowledge development and sharing. And those were the four priorities. And I'm now going into finishing my third year, going into my fourth, and those still remain the four priorities for my attention. So, you know, I, I really feel like I've been very fortunate to be in such a great position at such a wonderful time and have a positive impact. And so I always say this 
this when I do presentations is I love my job. I genuinely do and feel like I was fortunate to have been given the opportunity to get the experience necessary to see the procurement process from a variety of different vantage points. So I know that was a very long winded way of telling you how I landed where I did, but it was also fraught with many failures along the way. And, you know, as I mentioned, when I graduated law school, I was talking about international law and how I wanted to be an international law practitioner. Well, I can tell you that I got at least a hundred rejection letters in that process, you know, trying to obtain work wow. in the international forum. And each time, you know, you learn something from the process, whether you're interviewed uh, in a different language, whether that's French. And so I was stunned to be interviewed in French in Chicago. It wasn't something I anticipated, but because I had mentioned that I had French on my resume, that happened. So those are things that you have to prepare for. And so obviously in Ottawa, it's much more of a normal occurrence. But at that point in time in Chicago, there weren't many French speakers. So when that happened, it was again, a stunning development, but again, a huge lesson learned, always be fully prepared for whatever uh, may happen, right? So thanks mm -hmm. again, Bruno, for having me and long-winded way of giving you the story of how I became the procurement ombudsperson. Confidence in what you do. I think that to me really stood out. You know, you can take that confidence with you wherever you go and, and bring that skill set. So let's find out more about the Office of the Procurement Ombudsman. What exactly is the Office of the Procurement Ombudsman? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's important to always be mindful of the fact that not everyone knows exactly what we do. So I love opportunities to share with more precision what our office does. But fundamentally, at its base, we try to help suppliers and buyers solve their issues associated with procurement and contracting. Now, that really boils down to three aspects of our mandate. The first one is reviewing complaints um, from suppliers. The second one is procurement practice reviews, which are more systemic reviews of the practices of government departments and agencies. And the third one is alternative dispute resolution, where we offer mediation for parties to a federal contract in the contract administration phase. And it's the one I like to accentuate the most because I think it's underutilized. And so, you know, there's always opportunities to avoid litigation. And here's one where we offer free of charge our mediation services to departments and agencies and either party to the contract can request our services, but it's ultimately a consensual process. So we offer those services at the request of the parties. But at the same time, you know, the parties have to be willing participants. And at any point in time, if it's not producing the results that the parties had anticipated, they can walk away. But we find that through our involvement, that the success rate in those mediations is over 90%, right? And so it's always time well spent. And pre-COVID, we used to travel to do them wherever the parties existed throughout Canada. Now with COVID, we've actually kind of mitigated that no ability to travel and we do everything online. And we found it um, not to be completely frank, not as effective because there's something intangible about having that person, you know, yeah. sitting across from you. But at the same time, it's a pretty close alternative and we've still found success. So we're pretty pleased with how we've managed to migrate ADR into an online environment. Why is, why is it important that OPO remains a neutral and independent organization? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question, Bruno. And like the thing for us is, you know, without that independence, we can't serve our constituents or our stakeholders, which are both the suppliers and buyers. So if we're seen to be favoring either party, then the other side will no longer trust us in our respective role. And that's incredibly important. And so one of the questions I'm often asked is in ROCs or reviews of complaints, how often do you find for the suppliers? Are you always, you know, advocating for the, the side of the suppliers? And A, we don't advocate on behalf of suppliers. And B, traditionally, over the course of the existence of the ombudsperson's office, it's been pretty close to a 50-50 split. Split. But what I do say is, even though it's a 50-50 split, we don't control the types of complaints we see. So any given year could have, you know, six to 10 meritless complaints where we would always find for the government department or the buyer. But we would still be performing our role effectively, even though the statistics would demonstrate that we always consistently found that the department had conducted everything appropriately. And so that's kind of the caution I give with that statistic. Um, also, I report directly to the minister. The minister has no day-to-day -day involvement in the operation of the office. The office writes all of the reports and they're all finalized prior to having any involvement from the minister's office, which again is incredibly important. As, as you can imagine, suppliers come to us often as a last recourse you know they've expired all of the other opportunities to deal directly with the department and they no longer know where to turn so they come to our office and as an ombudsperson's office we have an obligation to help them so even if in the formal mandate that i described there doesn't seem to be an existing way for us to help you. Well, there's always our informal mandate. And I kind of describe it as we're dot connectors. You know, you bring the issue to us and maybe we don't have the formal mandate to resolve it, but we might be able to informally. And if we can't, then we provide you at least guidance as to who might be able to further assist you. And in that way, we always try to help people. Wow. What are some of the misconceptions that you have heard about your work? Yeah, so the biggest one, and I always start this off every presentation about, you know, you're like the sheriff or, you know, you're just there to embarrass departments and agencies and point out only, you know, the wrongdoings of the department. And that's just simply not the case. We're, we're, we're trying to make the system work better and more effectively for everyone. And so if we do highlight, you know, practices that weren't necessarily followed in the best way, it's not to embarrass the department. It's simply to make sure that those practices are eradicated and that they're improved in the future. And so we also try to make efforts to highlight good practices so other departments and agencies can be aware of, oh, this specific department is doing this in a unique way, and we might wanna replicate what's applicable to our department. And so we see that as an opportunity. So as we meet with departmental officials, we highlight those good practices from other departments and connect those people together so they might be able to share those ideas and change how the procurement process is working. So I'll just go back to one of the previous previous questions you asked me and when I was talking about those procurement practice reviews which are the systemic aspects of what we do where we get kind of our lines of inquiry for those systemic reviews are based on the top 10 list. So every year we hear from all types of different constituents, whether it be suppliers, buyers, uh, industry councils, we hear from them about what's working and what's not working in the procurement process. And we actually categorize them into 10, well, we highlight the top 10 list of issues that those uh, individuals have experienced over the course of the past year. Mm -hmm. And so when I first became ombudsperson, 
that top 10 list was pretty static year over year. And I imagine it's frustrating just to see the same issues over and over. And I just felt like it's no longer appropriate to just simply highlight these are the 10 issues and kind of move forward, right? And so what we said was, as part of the systemic reviews, we're going to map out the next five years and translate those top 10 issues into three lines of inquiry. And so what we've done in our systemic reviews is we've identified the top 20 departments and agencies in terms of value and volume. And we've kind of subjected them all to the review of those three lines of inquiry. And we're seeing some similarities and some nuances as to how departments handle and tackle these issues. And so we see the recommendations we're making. And again, I can't provide like a static overall comment, like these departments are great. These departments need some improvement. But I will say that we're through that phase of we're seeing genuine positive changes in that top 10 list and we're seeing them being addressed. And I think that makes me feel like we're actually performing our role effectively because we're seeing changes as a result of issues that are being brought to our attention as opposed to just raising them and kind of leaving them be, we've created an action plan. And so I think that's really important to note as well. There is value in bringing an issue to us, even if we can't resolve it in terms of it can't be an active complaint about an active contract doesn't matter still bring it to our attention we can put it in to those general inquiries that then are translated into uh, systemic reviews wow why is the work you do so important yeah no and it's a great question and i kind of touched on that as well so yeah. I, I mentioned in the pprs and i'll start with that in the procurement practice reviews where we're looking at systemic reviews we highlight good and bad practices right and so from there, procurement officers can see, you know, what types of issues to avoid, how to mitigate some of those and look at the recommendations being made um, and, and learn something from them. But overall, I think we are seen as lending a helping hand to both buyers and suppliers, right? Where yeah. they don't seem to have a solution themselves. They need a third party coming in with a different voice. And I think that's a big part of what we offer is we're a different voice. So if a supplier were to call a contracting authority directly, it's handled a certain way. But if the supplier calls us and we're able to contact the contracting authority, it's a different conversation and mm -hmm. oftentimes a more effective conversation at actually resolving the issue at hand because we remove some of the litigation risks, some of the emotionally charged conversation that might happen because they're actively involved in an issue or a dispute. So that what, that's what makes our, our role incredibly important and also connecting people at the right time, you know, making sure that parties across government are speaking to one another as well because as I mentioned, there are times where a certain department is doing something really effectively and someone else is struggling with that same issue and they just don't know it. And so we, we see our role is also connecting those parts of uh, the procurement society together and making sure that they speak and form those connections. Here's a question I've been curious about. How has the procurement ombudsman been received both from the public service and the private sector? Yeah, and, that, and that's a fair question. I mean, I obviously can't answer on behalf of either community, but I think I'm always given a fair shake, right? When we come uh, before departments and agencies and explain our role and explain why we might be subjecting them to a systemic review, almost without exception, they understand the merits of participating as actively as possible and share that desire to improve their processes. 
And then for the supplier side, you know, they want to be heard. And sometimes they're not given that chance because either a debriefing isn't held or their questions remain unanswered. And so they're looking for someone to really listen to their issues, understand them and try to resolve them. And so that's where we kind of sit in such an important place for suppliers. And so I would say for the most part, suppliers are very happy that they have an outlet and a recourse um, where they can air their grievances and find out how they can move past just being a grievance and actually getting to a resolution of the issue. What is one thing you enjoy about your work? <laughs> so I mentioned it, but connecting with people, understanding and solving issues is the first thing I'll say. Um, but I also secretly love all the gray matter that exists in procurement. And so there's a lot of gray space. And I, I find that that's really what makes our job important is to help interpret that gray matter. And so we have very active debates within the office as to, you know, what the rules are, what the facts are, how we should apply the rules to the facts. And so, you know, we have to lay everything on the table before making decisions. And then we do engage in pretty much office wide debate as to what the, the right course of action should be and so being a procurement nerd it's something that i genuinely enjoy and there's a lot of uh, kind of overlap with my legal advisor uh, role when i get to participate in this manner and ultimately you know the authority to make the decision rests with me and i treat that very seriously and so it does bring on stress in those final stages where a decision ultimately has to be made and that decision rests with me and so but i but i find it stressful but exhilarating at the same time Mm-hmm. What challenges have you faced managing your work portfolio and how did you overcome them? Yeah, and that's a great question too. So I really want to be as aggressive as possible, offering the most we can to all stakeholders, right? And so there's always a cost to that. And so burning out staff is the other side of the equation, right? And so it's how can we offer the most valuable services to stakeholders while still not burning out staff, especially in a challenged COVID environment? So the solution actually kind of went back to what I would describe as a conversation I have often with my kids, which is, you know, needs versus wants. Right. So we had to put all of the needs and wants of the office on the table and determine, okay, what are the needs and what are the wants? And as we went through that exercise, we were able to kind of remove some things from the table that were nice to haves, but not critical at a time where everyone was already overburdened with stress. And so again, uh, the goal is always to serve the stakeholders to the best of the ability, but it's also incumbent on me in providing, you know, a healthy and happy workspace for people to thrive. And so you have to find that, that nice balance. And, you know, we're always working to find that balance and we're trying our best, but again, we're always seeking to serve the stakeholders as well and their needs matter significantly as well. Are there any interesting initiatives that you're currently involved in? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that question because there are a couple that I'd like to highlight. One is uh, called diversifying the federal supply chain. And how we got involved in this is uh, back in 2019, we saw in the minister's mandate letter, there was a call to action for diversifying the federal supply chain. And so 
we thought, what could our role be in this space? And so you heard me mention in an earlier kind of answer about you know being a dot connector. And that's how we see our role here is we see diverse suppliers who aren't necessarily touched by some of the existing communication channels about procurement opportunities. And so we knew that there were federal programs that existed specifically for those diverse suppliers, but they just weren't reaching the intended audience for whatever reason. And our role was not to identify the reason, but simply add uh, a platform that would allow exposure of these important federal programs to exist and allow those suppliers who are supposed to benefit from them to actually hear how they can benefit from them. And ultimately, the goal was to help diversify the federal supply chain, help these suppliers win federal contracts. So we had done two in-person summits, one in Ottawa and one in Toronto, and it kept growing in terms of size because there was more and more attention being paid to the issue. Uh, so last year we did our third and it was done virtually. And so we're actually uh, planning our fourth, which is going to be held on January 26th and 27th of 2022. Uh, it again will be online, but we're really excited and we're seeing you know, significant engagements from all sides. And I think that's what really matters in this is it's not just the suppliers who are interested. The federal government partners are also equally interested in making significant changes. And so I'm sure you see this from your end as well, but this is a sustained commitment that we we're trying to create on the behalf of uh, the federal government. And the way I describe this is we're also holding people's feet to the fire, right? You can't you can't come year over year and say the same thing. There has to be progress. And so we're always asking, okay, what's changed from the last time we met? What progress have we seen? Is it tangible enough? And so the one thing I rail about, and I'll say it again today is, you know, data. Because there is no significant baseline data, it's really hard to say, are things getting better? Are they getting worse? Or are they staying the same, right? And so I know that the next step is really creating good baseline data so that at least then those assessments can be made. Because if you create key performance indicators without knowing where you stand, it's irrelevant because you won't be able to know how you're doing. So that baseline data is necessary. And that's one of the things that I've been really pressing on is, you know, let's, let's find the levers necessary to create that baseline data. Wow. <laughs> Diversity and inclusion has been incredibly important to our office and it's been something really embraced by the staff. So we created a diversity and inclusion internal committee, which allows for a variety of different things, but predominantly sharing views. And these are open and frank discussions that we have on a weekly basis. And we'll bring in guest speakers and we'll make it available to all staff, or sometimes we limit the discussions to just the diversity and inclusion committee, but we found it to be really powerful. And so the diversity summit offers an additional outlet for all of those members who are really passionate about diversity and inclusion to actually find a direct aspect of our mandate where they can you know translate all of that passion and still have meaningful change for diverse suppliers so we're really excited about that and then the other uh, initiative that i'll highlight is um kds which is what we call internally but it's called knowledge deepening and sharing and so really those are uh, research projects where we look to create research on topics that are of interest to the federal 
procurement community. And so one of those areas is the root causes of issues. So when people come see us traditionally, you know, there's a specific set of facts that we need to look at the issue from. We were always kind of hoping that we could look at things more broadly, but we didn't always have the opportunity because ultimately we're to perform a discrete task and that's look at the complaint before us. So KDS initially at its inception was to look at what are the core issues causing these repetitive issues. We did a few of those as an example, late payments, you know, why do late payments happen? And we came to unlock the fact that late payments is actually also a terminology issue. What a late payment means to a supplier is different than what a late payment means to the government buyer. And just kind of translating the language for both parties is incredibly important because both sides use the term, but both sides use it differently, meaning a different thing. And so that was incredibly important. And then we've also kind of pivoted a little bit on knowledge deepening and also kind of being forward looking. You know, maybe we haven't heard an awful lot about these issues yet to justify, you know, launching a systemic review, but we see issues happening. And so emergency procurement would be an example of, you know, we saw the pandemic and we wanted to get involved and we wanted to be helpful. And so we thought, could we offer a knowledge piece on emergency procurement? What are the considerations, you know, when engaging in emergency procurement and bring a spotlight to the issue and kind of peel some of the layers beyond what's reported in in the news, right? And so we thought that that was also a useful initiative. And so then we promote these knowledge pieces at conferences and share them as broadly as possible to challenge people to engage further. So we're only scratching the surface. These are, you know, 10 to 20 page reviews, but it sparks a conversation and gives us an access point to have conversation. And so, you know, we have all of these published on our website. So if this sounds interesting to your viewers, you know, I would strongly encourage you to go to our website website and look at the knowledge pieces we've developed over the last three years because they're really well done and i'm not saying that because it's from the office they are really well done and well researched so i hope that the viewers equally find interest in reading them i know me personally i can't wait to read the latest procurement ombudsman report i certainly find great value in those which leads me to uh yeah how do listeners find out more information about what you do yeah, so the best place is probably our website, right? And it's as simple as just simply Googling Office of the Procurement Ombudsman and you'll find the webpage and it, it's well laid out and you'll be able to find all of our recent reports, but also we're active on social media. So on Twitter, we're at OPPO underscore Canada. We're also on LinkedIn. And if you want to contact us by phone, we have a team designed to answer questions that people have on phone or on email. So I can give that number. It's one 734 5169 or by email. It's ombudsman at opo-boa.gc.ca. But again, I don't expect people to write that down. It's all available on our website. And like I said, that would be the best starting point. You'll have access to all of that information. That's fantastic. At the last SIPM summit, I was listening about uh, the research that you've also undertaken um, engaging with various procurement entities outside of Canada. Something was brought up that made me go, huh, okay, that's cool. It was the uh, the chief procurement officer role. And, and, and that stood out to me, frankly, because I have been listening to podcasts on the, on the private side, just in general. I listened to a couple of great podcast and a common trend that's been spoken to was having this supply chain SAR, sort of this one role that will oversee supply chain 
especially now with the pandemic, that it's just affecting the supply chain so much. So having a, an official role to manage just the interconnectedness of, and, and, and specifically focus on supply chain. So it seems to be common themes happening here. Can you speak to just your position and your, your research and what you found out about uh, when doing your research about the supply chain, the chief procurement officer? position. Yeah, absolutely. So it actually links back to something I said earlier in terms of the top 10 list, in terms of repetitive issues that seem to be happening over and over again. And so as we started our re report on the chief procurement officer, we also looked back historically over reports highlighting the need for the chief procurement officer. And we saw a repetition in the types of issues that we saw that remain unaddressed and relatively unchanged over a pretty dramatic amount of time. So we're not talking about five years, we're talking about decades of time where the issues in the reports raised still resonate current time, right? And so that indicated to me that you needed to have a position who was solely responsible for that. So arguably, you know, you have a tri-headed Hydra in that you have PSDC, you have TBS, and you have the controller general within TBS who all have discrete and important roles associated with procurement, but you don't really have that one face of procurement who you know is seminally charged with all matters that relate to procurement. So who's responsible for training? Who's responsible you know, for policy? And you're pointing to different people in each answer. And so it would be nice if, like we have seen in other areas of the federal government, like the chief health officer, the chief HR officer, the chief IT officer, We've seen the development of the need for this type of position. And so again, we went through the research and we looked at other jurisdictions, as you mentioned, and saw that other jurisdictions equally saw this as an opportunity in time to make decisions and actually implement this type of position. And again, some of them, it was as an agent of change, they were undergoing significant change and they needed someone to be responsible and lead that change. And that was the impetus to start the role. And then ultimately they've cultivated more aspects or more importance to the role, but we've seen it also provincially within Canada and we reached out to those CPOs at the provincial level and we spoke to them you know by phone and we found you know what what's working and what's not working and you know we we heard a lot of positives and we saw there being you know a lot of positives associated with what the opportunity presents as well so I'm not saying it's the answer to all that ills procurement but it's certainly in our view something that should be studied further and we see it as a very positive outcome. And so it's, I'm glad you raised it because it's an opportunity again to encourage people to read the piece. It does probe you to ask more questions. And again, think of your role and how that chief procurement officer might help you in your role, right? And two of the things that I talk about and you're, you're actually helping with is building that community, right? Who's responsible for building that community? And there's a variety of different players and that's great. And they all build up to something, but who's responsible for coordinating all that? And it would be wonderful if you could name one individual and then they would have that ultimate responsibility. Wow. Fantastic. Uh, any call to action for our listeners? Yeah, so I, I just, this is one thing that's incredibly important to me and it's from my vantage point, I've been fortunate to see the procurement process from a variety of different angles, right? Whether it's from the supplier side, bidding on opportunities, dealing with the frustrations and complications of the process itself, to being a drafter of solicitation documents, drafting the technical specification, sitting on the evaluation committee, being on a 
conflicts uh, committee. So each one of those roles is incredibly important in the process, but your motivations and what drives you in fulfilling your task is different. So as you experience issues, I just ask you to evaluate your issue from the various perspectives and try to interpret what's happened based on the variety of perspectives and don't simply look at it from one perspective because I think it allows you to more effectively communicate to partners because if you're always asking for things that are impossible it's very difficult to come up with the solution because it's just not in the realm of possible but understanding you know what constraints exist in some of those positions you know why can't I speak directly to an evaluator before you know consensus has happened is a question you know and so understanding the process understanding those respective roles incredibly important so that's my call to action and the last thing i'll say is if you're experiencing any issues with procurement at the federal level we'd love to hear from you uh, that's why we exist we take all of that information and so we either actively assist you or point you in the right direction so again you know just simply google office the procurement ombudsman and the office's website will pop up and thanks again bruno for giving us the opportunity to share uh, a bit of our life and our story with you and your viewers Thank you, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and to get to explore a little bit more about the world of the procurement ombudsman. I will leave today's um, podcast episode with the quote of the day from Tamara Taylor, who is a uh, Canadian actress. She left said a quote that says, as long as you keep going, you'll keep getting better. And as you get better, you'll gain more confidence. That alone is success. And this is to speak to your earlier uh, bio of how you navigated the world of supply chain and, and, and your career uh, through the ups and downs and you've pushed through and you you continue to do that um, as you, you work with the ombudsman position that you're, you're charged with. So uh, I thought it was fitting. But once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Bruno.